0: On to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome James Ellsmore to the show. James Ellsmore is the Director of Island Innovation, a consulting agency he founded not long after graduation while studying for a Master's in Island Studies. He has a passion for sustainable development and renewable energy, particularly applications for rural and isolated communities. In 2019, he ran the inaugural Virtual Island Summit, which brought together 4,000 participants from Scotland to Samoa to share stories about their communities. James has always used technology to advance his mission, allowing him to live and work anywhere and manage a team spread over four continents. Island Innovation focuses on bringing together NGOs, the private sector, universities, and government with projects covering topics such as lithium extraction, climate change, and public policy. James, how are you doing today?
1: Hey Raj, I'm doing quite well, thanks. How are you?
0: James, I'm doing fantastic. Where in the world are you?
1: I am back in the UK. Two weeks ago, I was actually in Colombia, but the British government helped uh, get me home on an evacuation flight, so I thought I'd, I'd take them up on that opportunity.
0: Wow, that sounds really interesting. So, were there any problems in Colombia? Was it difficult getting out?
1: Yeah, we could spend the whole episode talking about my journey back from Colombia. To be honest, um, no i've been I've been kind of living there unofficially for about six months. Um, there was no particular issues in Colombia. Actually, they, the Colombian government so far have done a better job of dealing with the, the issues going on than the UK government has. Um, but I was getting to the end of my visa time. Um, there were no flights in and out in Colombia. And the British government told me if I didn't take the flight, then I was on my own. So I thought, uh, you know, time to come back to the to the UK, even though I was probably safer in Colombia, to be <laughs> honest.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad you're back safely. Thank you. So James, I'd like to start my show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be?
1: Huh, good question. Well, maybe starting with the islands theme that we'll be getting into. I actually did my master's in island studies, which most people are confused about what even is island studies. You can do a degree in that. So that's one thing. And the other thing is actually where I'm talking to you now from, I grew up on a farm in rural England, uh, lived there for most of my life. So currently coming into you from the English countryside. So two little factoids.
0: That's beautiful. I actually grew up in Southeast London, did my O-levels there, did my secondary schooling, and then our whole family moved to Dallas, Texas, where I've been for about 30 years now. Fantastic. So you mentioned island studies. Can you share a little bit about your current endeavor?
1: Yeah, so my business is called Island Innovation. We I started the business um, really after being fortunate enough to have the experience of working in the Pacific Islands, in the caribbean and then coming back to the uk and uh, studying as i mentioned in scotland and doing some work in there and what was fascinating to me was having experiences working and, and living to an extent on islands starting off in energy but then looking at broader issues as well how similar the conversations were whether i was on a small scottish island in jamaica in fiji um, the, the the parallels between the issues being discussed and so what I, the reason I created Island Innovation was really as a platform to share information and connect people. And so I, I launched the platform, um, starting off with a newsletter and a blog, and we've gradually grown since then. And uh, this year, we'll be hosting the Virtual Island Summit. We'll be having aiming for 10,000 island stakeholders from all over the world, um, a really wide range of backgrounds, and really want to... Bring them together to advance the cause of sustainable development and share solutions and ideas.
0: So, congratulations on launching at that milestone. You know, islands have some unique challenges compared to mainlands. Can you share some of those challenges?
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the the challenges are are really varied. I mean, one of the obvious ones, you know, talking with you is is energy issues. Um, is is a very uh, the one that stands out to me, um, as an example, in the Caribbean, you can be paying for your electricity bill anywhere from two to five times more than people in Florida are paying. Um, and this is despite the fact that we're looking at countries with a much lower um, average income than in, in the US. And so you know, that affects, uh, as you know, energy affects all parts of the economy. You can't manufacture competitively or um, do many other things competitively with with high energy costs. And so that's kind of a serious barrier. The other one is kind of a dependency. Um, many islands, uh, and this has been very much brought to light in the last few months, are really dependent on tourism. In fact, Aruba is over 90%, close to 95% of the economy depends on, on tourism, which you can imagine the devastation that's caused over the last um, two months in terms of uh, people uh unemployment etc and a loss of, of income for, for government and private uh, sector companies so um but dependency kind of goes on other ways in, in energy dependency also is relevant in terms of the dependency on diesel and a big driver um to move towards renewables has been this dependency on imported diesel which can easily be disrupted and the islands when there have been oil price spikes in the past have been really hard economically hit by those and also a dependency on imported food um a growing trend over the last few decades has been for more and more food to be imported um, and you know it's a it's a sad situation where it's cheaper to in the Caribbean for example to get chicken that's been um, uh, grown in Georgia than to grow chicken locally um, uh, and and you know it's cheaper to import and this is this applies a lot in the Pacific as well and there are big health implications on that um, as well as the other, other problems of, of relying on import so so there's a lot of these issues that are common to islands uh, around the world and uh, I, I could go there's I could go on in the list you know things like waste disposal and recycling vulnerabilities to climate change and climate adaptation etc
0: so I really appreciate you sharing that. You know, I've had the benefit of being on a couple of your webinars recently, most uh, recent was a couple of days ago regarding Jamaica, and really understanding some of the challenges that sp- especially the Caribbean islands are having. What are some of the actions? I know you interact quite a bit with government officials. What are some of the actions that you see them taking or actually discussing right now to help address some of these current issues, but also some of the upcoming issues? I know we're going into hurricane season too.
1: Yeah, and the problem is just because there's a global pandemic, it doesn't stop the hurricanes. And so we're going to see a, a really challenging issue where islands that have actually managed to get the, uh, the, the pandemic under the control are now being facing the hurricane risk. And, of course, one of the obvious things that happens when hurricanes hit is you get a large amount of foreign aid and foreign help coming in. And the first question is, is that foreign help going to be available when people are trying to um, do things locally and, uh, and, and solve problems that are happening at home? And the second is even if those workers do come in, that's a horrible trade-off for governments to have to make, risking bringing in, you know, potentially more of the virus and more infected people um, that, that could actually do more damage than good. And, uh, and, and that was actually a decision made in Vanuatu last month when a cyclone hit. Um, the government made the decision not to allow foreign foreign aid workers to come and help with the recovery because they had no cases of COVID at that time and uh, they had to weigh up the opportunity cost of that. So, you know, those, the, those kind of issues are, are really, really prevalent. Um, one of the things that we're trying to do is, is break down some of the boundaries and some of the, the, the silos that exist um, on multiple levels. One of those is obviously the geographic dispersion and those, those uh, barriers that exist. But another one is trying to build interaction between islands of different political statuses. You know, Puerto Rico might have more in common with Jamaica, but because Jamaica is an independent country and Puerto Rico is a territory, the opportunities for interaction there are somewhat limited. Uh, likewise, say the Florida Keys is a county of Florida, and so they might have more in common with other Caribbean islands. So how do you help engage different types of islands that are di- different political statuses? Um, uh, because sometimes the, the those opportunities are missed out. And then finally, I think I'm a really big believer, and this applies even more so on islands than mainlands, of bringing in all the different sectors and successful sustainable development needs to involve the private sector, NGOs, governments, universities, utilities, all of those different players need to work together. And as we know, that doesn't always uh, happen to the same extent that uh, that, that it should do.
0: Thank you. Now, obviously, during this time of the pandemic, we're going through some really uncertain times. How have your most recent conversations with officials and other stakeholders in the island Perhaps better said, what are some of the plans that they're making as we try to establish some kind of new normal new you know on the other side of this pandemic?
1: yeah I mean to be honest there's a lot of there's a lot of worry and confusion and kind of uh, people are trying to figure out how to actually respond because the, the, everything is so unpredictable and we don't really know what's going to be happening two months down the road, let alone next year. So all these plans are kind of being put into place, but a lot of, the, a lot of what's happening now is really guesswork. I've been currently working on a project with the University of Strathclyde in Scotland to collect information and data just because a lot of the, the policymakers that need to make decisions don't have enough data to to make those decisions on. And so we've been trying to collect surveys and information from university, uh, from islands around the world to uh, find out what is happening locally and how they are responding. Um, clearly one of the biggest issues um, right now is when and how to reopen tourism. Um, a good example of this is Greenland, which um, I can't remember if they had no cases or if they did, they got them under control very early. So Greenland is COVID free, but is also quite a tourism dependent um, island um, as are many of the Caribbean islands. And uh, for the, P- the Pacific islands as well that were managed to remain COVID free, they have now a big problem that they potentially can might have to go another year without tourism, um, which is a major income source for them, but in order to keep out the virus completely. And so those kinds of decisions need to be made. Um, for now, uh, it's kind of a month-to-month basis, a lot that I see, but there was an announcement last week from the Jamaican government uh, that they are preparing their tourism sector to go back to work as soon as the, the tourists... Um, Are prepared to return. So there's a difficult trade-off there. Do you stop the virus completely and stop people coming in? Or do you risk people running out of food and not being able to work at all? That's what all all policymakers are going through around the world on on islands and not.
0: So it sounds like a common theme in what you're saying is this idea of resiliency and self-sufficiency. So based on your experience and the data that you currently have, if you had the ears of, you know, the government officials and could perhaps give them an idea or two or three, what are some of the things that you've been thinking about that perhaps could help them become more resilient over time?
1: Right, and there's a growing movement. I mean, I think renewable energy is one um, that absolutely makes sense for resiliency, not just renewable energy, um, but thinking about the structure of microgrids and storage. I mean, there was a big discussion after Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico about dividing the island up into microgrids and trying to spread out the load and, uh, and sorry spread out the uh, generation facilities. Uh, so when another hurricane hits as it inevitably will, uh, they do not uh, it doesn't wipe out the whole island's electricity, as Hurricane Maria did. So efforts like that and, and decreasing the dependency on, on imports for fuel obviously makes sense. Trying to help generate local sustainable agriculture. But it's really difficult to do that when things uh, when when it's cheaper to import things. Obviously, people tend to vote with their uh, vote with their wallet, and that's all good when uh, when times are normal and there's no disruption to the supply chain. But as soon as the supply chain hits, um, the that can really create problems. And so, you know, this may be a bit political, but that's where I really see a role for governments to to play to help. Um, Help stimulate that local industry. Um, as much as I don't want to advocate for protectionism, that's not what I'm trying to say. In some in some cases, um, what that stimulation of local industries can do is to make sure that when when other countries uh, close their borders or stop stop exporting or whatever that means, then there is the local facility, the local resilience to to respond and, and bounce back. Um, so so I think those type of initiatives uh, specifically. That could be building hurricane-resistant greenhouses or hurricane-resistant agriculture and, and, and supporting farmers to be able to develop that. But a lot of it is also levels of government policy that need to come into place to support those industries. And unfortunately, in many islands, that's been lacking um, at the expense of local of local industries. I think there's a growing knowledge that this... this um, t- there's a growing understanding, rather, that this dependency on tourism doesn't do anyone any good, and particularly the dependency on cruise ships. I mean, cruise ships offer a whole uh, a whole other conundrum that we could go into as well. But um, at the same time, then there is a need for, uh, there is a need, like, like it's easy to say, oh, we, d- we need to move beyond tourism, but the reality of actually finding solutions to do that is, is much more complicated. And, and you know, I don't have the answers to that. People are, we're still working on it. And I think everything since the pandemic has, the pandemic started, Uh, has been been up in the air
0: you know you're so right and i kind of hope that with some of the individuals that you're speaking to they do start thinking about what's beyond tourism because who knows you know if this is a one-time event or a multi-year event so Mm -hmm. essentially ideas to think on resiliency so james switching gears a little bit you know, the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. And so, what I mean by that is that, you know, obviously you studied islands in school. There could be many other paths you can go down right now with that education. There's an opportunity cost for you to be doing this. What drives you? What's your passion? What keeps you, you know, coming to work every single day to do this?
1: Well, I mean, I, so far today, I, I can't travel, travel physically, but so far on my course today, I've been to Papua New Guinea, to Mauritius, to Jamaica. Barbados to Antigua um, in one day. So I I mean, for me, that's also an amazing opportunity to be able to travel the world in in these conversations and learn about what people are doing on a a personal level. But I also think there's this this huge opportunity for islands to showcase solutions that are creating a um, level of resiliency um, that can be implemented elsewhere. So the fact is that these high energy costs mean that projects in the Caribbean potentially Are economically viable in a way that they would not be in uh, the mainland of the U.S. in Texas, for example. Um, So, so there is an there's an interesting um, kind of there's there's something something interesting there. I think that potentially the fact that they are forced to innovate means that uh, these earlier. I often see things happening in islands that I think will be inevitable in mainland areas in the future. A good example of this is the utilities movement to looking at, at looking at microgrids. Now, in most parts of the US, for example, that would not be economically viable now, but in many islands it is. And I wonder uh, when we'll get to the point where actually microgrids and, and distributed generation does become more economically viable on a wide scale. In the US, maybe the solutions that have been developed in Puerto Rico or Jamaica will uh, be able to provide blueprints for other areas to follow and that applies to other sectors beyond energy.
0: So, this passion towards islands—when did it start?
1: Huh. Good question. I—I uh, I mean, I've always maybe had this strange fasc- fascination uh, with looking at island communities and uh, trying to—I uh, mean, just, just on a personal level, visiting them. I mean, islands are obviously some of the most beautiful places in the world, and it's great to have a job where I also get, under normal circumstances, the opportunity to travel to some of them as well. Um, but I think as I got more involved with meeting people in different islands and and having, you know, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to travel so much and visit these different places and see those commonalities in a way that other people have not had the opportunity to do. And so by being able to build those bridges and connect people and help stimulate conversations that they can also benefit from, I, I feel I'm in a pretty privileged position that I can do that in a way that I enjoy. I can also run a business that, that is successful and does actually, many people are surprised, does actually make money, um, but at the same time, uh, do something which is having a positive impact um, for, for many people.
0: So let's pretend for a minute, it's just me and you, no one else is listening. What's your favorite island?
1: <laughs> well, I—that I, that is a very, very difficult question to ask me. I couldn't possibly tell you. You'd have any idea mm-hmm. how much trouble, trouble I would get in for answering answering that question. Um, and I, it, it really depends as well because, I mean, one places that I have particular personal connections to that I've spent time in, Orkney, um, which is an archipelago in the north of Scotland. Um, it's not somewhere that you go to sunbathe on the beach. It's cold, it's windy, but it's incredibly beautiful, incredibly um, unique in many respects. They have some of uh, – on an energy perspective, they have the most cutting-edge research into tidal um, – sorry, uh, tidal and wave energy in the world. They also have these really advanced hydrogen projects, um, which they're using excess energy to be able to do. And again, that's a factor of that isolation, being forced to innovate. They have this very unusual situation, which isn't applicable in many other places, where it became economically viable to do a lot of projects using hydrogen. So I've been also incredibly beautiful, incredibly warm and and lovely people that I know there. Whereas, you know, in the Caribbean, I've spent a lot of time in Jamaica and I love Jamaica, just such an incredibly beautiful island and really, really amazing people as well. So I'm not going to give you a favourite, but two places I've spent a lot of time and I do have a really close connection with um, and and are, are definitely fascinating. And then in the Pacific, one place that I got to spend a lot of time, uh, was, well, a little bit of time actually, was Tuvalu, um, which is, again, completely unusual. The smallest uh, sovereign country in the world, around 12,000 people, or one of the smallest, I should say, um, 12,000 people in the whole country, and I was sitting on the beach and met um, the Taiwanese ambassador walking his dog and had a chat with him and the type of place where, where those conversations happen. Um, but also just at the same time very, very vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. Where, wherever you are, you're a few meters away from the sea and at most one meter above sea level. So um, all these places are very, very different, but I love the fact that there are these commonalities um, that can draw them together that make this platform a useful place to share information.
0: Thank you for sharing, James. So, James, on your journey with Island Innovations, what are some of the big learning moments that you've had?
1: I think an interesting learning moment to be. I've, I've been able to work with very different sectors and seeing how certain parts of the private sector work compared to how certain parts of government work you know these these sectors can sometimes be at each other's throats or, or collaborating deeply and often the mentalities in those different sectors universities and academia is a whole other thing which is again very very different and people think differently and to be able to see and understand how people think and why people act in the way they do as opposed to just saying oh government's slow and bureaucratic therefore i have no interest in working with it accepting like Government can be slow and can be bureaucratic by its nature. It doesn't have to be, but often there are reasons for why that is. I mean, some of the Caribbean islands, again, the government ministries might have a tiny staff juggling a huge array of different things that whole departments in a larger country would be, would be tackling. And then of course they are slow and and not as quick to react as other places when, when the staff are so overstretched and have so many different things going on. So Trying to have a better understanding of how different sectors work and, and why, um, and also yeah, helping to be able to try and bridge that gap and and be able to help them work together in a in a useful way. I think has been a really interesting learning learning experience. I wouldn't be able to define it in in a useful way, but it's more thinking about like seeing things and, and slowly being able to grasp. Grasp these different actions that are taking place,
0: and that really is an interesting learning. You know, very often we're caught in our own bubbles. And for example, what you said just now, when we hear the word government, we think every single government around the world has a robust structure with hundreds, if not thousands, of people working there. But then, when you mention this island that has a few, you know, a handful of individuals that are trying to take care of or handle the entire population that really does change your perspective. So that that's a really interesting learning. Thank you for that. So what about some of the aha or surprise movements you've had in your journey?
1: Well, an interesting experience that I've had over the last few months has been building up the use of virtual events. We started virtual events before it became cool in 2020 by necessity, uh, before everyone else was doing it, and, and not just kind of webinars, but thinking about whole conferences and how things can be done virtually, and the idea for me behind that was to think about uh, the opportunity that that brings to involve more people. By doing an event virtually, you're not just limiting yourself to the person who has the time, and money, and energy to travel halfway across the world sometimes um, to actually be there in person. You are you're, you're opening it up, and so for me, I had a lot of experiences in going to conferences in different places and seeing the same faces and same people and having those conversations. But then by doing things virtually, we were able to involve um, just, just involve more people that still had a really useful contribution and interesting contribution to make. And obviously some of that is geographic, just places that are really geographically dispersed. How do you get the Maldives, Greenland, um, Mauritius and Fiji in the same room and um, representatives to have that conversation, um, particularly if they're grassroots people who may not travel normally. Uh, but also thinking about You know, maybe it's a single parent who has the kids to look after and can't do that travelling, or it's a grassroots group who are doing amazing things on the ground, but all their money is being invested in um, the actual projects, and so they don't have a budget to participate in things. We even had a speaker at the event um, that last year that we hosted, which uh, was on the island of Tristan da Cunha, which is in the South Atlantic, an island of 500 people that has four cargo ships a year that go from Cape Town. It takes a week to get there. And that's the only way to get there. There's no airstrip. And they were able to participate over a phone link and do a whole presentation at our talk. And so for me, the value in those types of conversations, I think, is, um, is, is huge and, and this inclusivity element. And so the aha moment is seeing now how virtual events are, you know, everyone's all of a sudden trying to run webinars. You must be inundated with emails every week. I'm thinking, looking at how this is evolving so quickly and thinking, okay, how can we advance these virtual events to play a youthful and active uh, role in the future? When things go back to normal, whatever, whatever normal becomes, um, I think the fact that people have been forced to be involved in virtual events is going to also mean uh, they, they stay, maybe we'll have a few months when people are sick of being behind the computer and, and want to push into going to events again, but I think virtual events are going to be here to stay. And what's been really cool for me in the last few months is seeing the um, the level of innovation and the speed of innovation happening with tools that were just not available to me last year when I was trying to put this event together. Um, so our Virtual Island Summit is taking place in September. You know, we'll encourage your listeners to to attend that to see see what we're doing. virtualislandsummit.com. Um, but also, we are working with other companies to actually help them and. And, and train them on how they can use virtual events for their own uses as well. And, uh, that, th- this, I think there's so much more that's going to be happening even in a year's time. We'll be looking at the space completely differently.
0: And how have you seen the reception for these virtual events?
1: Well, last year, I think there was a lot, it was a lot of curiosity. You know, we did this virtual island summit for the first time As we said we had 4,000 participants joining and there was a lot of curiosity to see, okay, we're interested in these virtual events, but how do they work? How can we use them? Now people get it because they've been forced to in the last two months, but um, mm-hmm. I, I think there's interest, but a lot of people are still quite negative I think because often they don't understand them. And for me actually it's often a, not a tech question. The problem is not tech. It's uh, that obviously you have to have good tech, but it's a psychology question and a communications question. It's not just thinking about can we technically deliver a good event but also not just trying to cram in what was what worked as a physical event schedule. Into a virtual setting and hope it works because people are thinking and operating completely differently when they're when they're at home, um, and so so trying to think about all these, these psychological and sociological uh, questions and, and this is still evolving so quickly. I don't think there are even best practices now, and so we've been working with various people to to try and, and and shape these events. And you know, people are becoming bored of webinars now and sitting behind the computer. So how can we take webinars to the next level? And also make the the um, the networking component, which is often lacking, even more useful and um, and and just just to work better.
0: Well, I can tell you from firsthand experience. You know, I've attended your past two webinars, and the one aspect of it that I really do enjoy is the ability to chat with people from places around the world. And you mentioned, you know, not having to travel and perhaps on a budget or whatever that might look like. But I've made several connections from being in the chat on your webinars. And I actually think you do a great job. I've been on quite a few webinars over the past few weeks, and some of the moderators or some of the webinars don't allow for a robust chat section. But Mm -hmm. in yours, there's an opportunity to introduce yourself and then take conversations offline very, very quickly, which essentially is what people try to do when they go to in-person Events is that yes, they may go for the speaker or two or a room or two, but essentially, you're trying to network. And then, you know, obviously, whether it's create a relationship for, you know, uh, commerce or for a personal relationship, whatever that might look like, you're attempting to meet individuals. But the way I would say it is that when you go to a conference, it's more one to one, whereas in your webinars, it's a one to many opportunity. So I give you, you know, a full thumbs up for doing what you're doing, and I will absolutely. Put a link to your virtual event in the show notes. So please, you know, feel free to send that over to me, and I'll get that we'll done. Do
1: yeah, in fact, I just wanted to add a add a quick comment on that. So, you know, we are, I I hate going to a webinar where I might as well be watching a YouTube video, and there's no reason to be there live. And so I think sometimes people become quite protective because maybe the people in the chat are also their connections, and they don't want all their connections networking without them. Um, or so I don't know. There seems like various reasons people do that. But for me, there's no point in doing a webinar. If it's just a passive experience, I might as well be watching a YouTube video. Like if I want to watch a YouTube video, I'll watch a YouTube video and not attend when I want to and not just attend a webinar at the time of the And so, yeah, I think uh, watch this space because I think on that networking portion, we've got a lot of interesting things coming up. So we're going to be trying to do trying to do that differently as well.
0: I'm really excited for that. And I think if I'm not mistaken, you mentioned that the webinar you had two weeks ago, there were 1,300 attendees or 1,300 registrants. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, so the last we did a series of three webinars on COVID responses, uh, sorry, island responses to COVID 19. The first one was a very global perspective. The second one was looking at the Caribbean region, and the third one, the Jamaica case study specifically. And the idea was to look at these different scales of responses. And I think over the course of the three webinars, we had over 3,000 registrants. um, And then uh, I think between 300 um, in the Jamaica one and 700 in the Caribbean one. People attending live, but also a ton of people watching the recordings as well. Um, and yeah, and as you saw in those sessions, part of the value of being there was this really animated discussion in the chat. Actually, the tech the, there's a tech issue there that the Zoom chat is really not good enough for the purposes we need. So I'm exploring new options, but uh, it still created a great experience, and that was why people show up to them, even when there are so many other webinars and similar topics happening in the same week.
0: It's brilliant. Thank you. So, James, I'd like to end our conversation with this question. If you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be?
1: Um, yeah, okay, two, two things, one on islands, one on virtual events. So I think one thing is, you know, this may be very obvious to some people, but it's surprisingly not obvious, thinking of islands as places that people live and work and have their lives and not just as your holiday destination is one. Obviously, go to them, enjoy them, spend time there, but um, for me, it's always disappointing seeing people who visit somewhere like Jamaica and never leave their, leave their resorts and don't benefit from the amazing interactions with people um, there. So thinking about the people who are living in the places if you're visiting them and and, and the, the, the lives that they're leading and, and, and how you can support them as opposed to just the, the big, uh, the big uh, holiday companies. And then the second one would be virtual events are the future. They're obviously very pressing right now. Um, but they're here to stay and the technology is just getting better and better. So use this opportunity now when you're forced to go virtual, to experiment, to do things that you probably wouldn't have done before, and to think about how you can integrate that um, into the work that you're doing in the future to ultimately reach more people and uh, and uh, involve more people in whatever it is you're, you're doing.
0: James, thank you for that so much. And you're also my first international guest, so thank you so much on that end too. Is there anything else we haven't talked about that you'd like to share before we go?
1: Oh, there's, there's lots of things, Raj. We could be here for hours if I, if you get me going on something. But uh, no, I think we covered some good ground here, so thanks a lot <laughs> for having me.
0: Well, James, perhaps we'll do a part two. Thank you again so much, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon.
1: Likewise. Thanks so much, Raj. Uh, looking forward to it.
0: Thank you for listening. And if you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you want to show your support, please share our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.